Making new friends with WMNF Tampa. Sending you love. Hi, I'm Jennifer McTritus, Chair of the Diversity and Inclusion Committee. Tune in to 88.5 FM and WMNF.org to hear interviews with our volunteer programmers, music you won't hear anywhere else, and informative news. Our Diversity and Inclusion Committee is excited to connect with organizations and individuals that support our local area. Thank you for keeping our community strong, and we want to help you make a difference. Let's do this together by emailing diversity at WMNF.org. The opinions presented on the Healthy Steps show are the evidence-based opinions of Dr. Fred Harvey, the callers, and his guests. These are not the opinions of the staff, the volunteers, or the board of WMNF. The information provided on the show is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease. There is no implied patient-physician relationship in these calls. The nature of the calls is educational and informational only. Hello out there, my dear friends, and thank you for keeping your radio tuned to WMNF Tampa. And definitely, welcome to the Healthy Steps Radio Show with Dr. Fred Harvey. Today, you're invited to participate in our discussions, or if you have any medical questions, by calling 813-239-9663 or sending your emails to dj at wmnf.org. You can also text us at 813-433-0885. And I'd like to take this moment here to whip out my junior fireman badge and remind everyone that today is the day to change the battery and your flashlights and your fire alarms. And that said, well, good morning to you, Dr. Fred. Well, my, oh my, you are out of town in places unknown for the 4th of July, and your topic is an open tablet of possibilities. So where are we going with this show today, Dr. Fred? Well, I think that today, happy Independence Day, everybody. Um, I think today is the day to talk about freedom. Um, it's a really important topic. <laughs> and uh, following up on that amazing show we just heard, um, Democracy Now!, um, democracy is in jeopardy and health freedom has been in jeopardy since this democracy or this republic, I should say, was founded on democratic principles. Um, what is freedom? Bill, do you know what freedom is? Are you there? I'm here. I just wasn't ready for the pop quiz. I know, I did that to you. Sorry about that. <laughs> so anyway, um, I have a definition right out of the Merriam-Webster. The power or right to act, speak, or think as one wants without hindrance or restraint. And so um, I think that uh, we all ex expect that ability in this nation to be able to speak our mind, to be able to act on things that uh, don't harm others, and we want to act without any kind of restraint. Um, in America, our political discourse is, you know, related to, you know, political freedom. That's how this country was founded. Um, and the founding fathers were trying to get free from a system that oppressed. And um, they bring up words like liberty and autonomy and a sense of giving oneself their own laws. And um, with having rights and civil liberties, uh, civil liberties to, again, act, speak, think, or get together in groups without any undue interference by the state. Um, we talk about freedom of assembly, freedom of association, freedom of choice, and freedom of speech. There is a freedom that was neglected by our founding fathers. 
One of our founding fathers, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, was a brilliant physician, a doctor named Benjamin Rush. Remember Benjamin Rush because he was brilliant. He had some very foundational uh, questions. He had some very strong opinions about access. And one of the things that has been attributed to him as a quote is, freedom can only exist in a society of knowledge. Without learning, men are incapable of knowing their rights. Rush um, was a very studied man. Rush left England um, for a similar reason that the pilgrims left England. He had developed his own system of medical therapies, a new system of looking at the human condition. And he obtained this information from a variety of methods. And he didn't just study, you know, the textbooks of people like William Harvey, who wrote the treatise on circulation in, in 1590 or thereabouts. <clears throat> he studied all over the place. And actually, he suggested that you should, he did, he, he said he obtained uh, what he thought to be valuable medical information from what the medical establishment considered lowly quacks, Indians and Negroes of all things, and urged his students to do the same. You remember at the time, and even today to a great extent, um, the practice of um, medicine was controlled by the Royal Academy. Well, who is in the Royal Academy except for old white men who the queen or the king favored with favors? <laughs> um, so they had a distinctly biased way of looking at reality. And um, so Rush felt that by teaching Americans the plain elements of his new system of medicine, untold millions of people would be spared a premature death. The practice of medicine would be no longer confined to the relatively few specialists, elite, as in the past, but will be thrown open to all people, even those of the, quote, meanest capacities, close quote, meaning that anybody can basically access good healthcare information and actually thrive. Medicine, like a government, would be at last emancipated from the tyranny of special and esoteric interests and restored to the people. It's no more necessary that a patient should be ignorant of the medicine he takes to be sure to buy it than that the business of government should be conducted with secrecy in order to ensure obedience to just laws. Much less it is necessary that the means of life should be prescribed in a dead language. That's Latin because all the doctors use Latin and nobody but doctors could understand it. So all the secrets were protected in Latin or dictated with the solemn pomp of the necromancer. Basically, um, there's a, there's a kind of joke in, in, um, Western medicine. Um, they call the surgeons called internists. That's the internal medicine doctor that deals with all of the, um, um, conditions inside and helps maybe keep people from dying with medicines. They're called the flea because they're last, the last doctor or the last creature to leave the dead body. And, the type of delivery of the methods of the information um, 
with solemn pomp, as he described it, you know, the, the edict coming down from the, the doctor on the pedestal telling you some bad news, uh, the pomp of the necromancer, he called it. Um, the effects of imposture and everything are like the artificial health produced by the use of ardent spirits. In other words, um, <laughs> when you take a drink of alcohol, you feel good for a little while. <laughs> it's temporary and always followed by misery. Benjamin Rush was brilliant and he wanted medical freedom. He actually um, was quoted, and now his philosophy would be uh, um, similar to this, but, but he is not necessarily the person who actually stated this, but it's been attributed to him. And the constitution of this republic should make special provisions for medical freedom as well as religious freedom. To restrict the art of healing to one class of men and deny equal privilege to another will constitute the Bastille of medical science. All such, the Bastille, by the way, is a horrible prison in, in France that was part of the reason that the French Republic became because they tore down the monarchy that filled political prisoners in the Bastille. All such laws, all such laws are un-American and despotic. Laws that restrict the art of healing to one class, to one elite, and deny equal privilege to another is un-American and despotic. They are fragments of monarchy and have no place in a republic. This is Benjamin Rush. He's brilliant. He gave us concepts of medical freedom that his compadres who created the constitution neglected to include. And so now we have problems. The practice of healthcare was never a business prior to the 20th century. It was an art. It was a profession. It had integrity and dignity, and it's changed because of a lot of different things. But I just want to make sure that everybody out there in Radioland knows that we're here to talk with you today. And um, it's, I think it's time to do a station identification. Absolutely a wise idea and remind everyone that they are listening to the Healthy Steps radio show here on the 4th of July episode of WMNF here in Tampa. And you can participate and we're looking forward to you calling on in at 813-239-9663 or sending your emails to dj at wmnf.org. And you can also text us, excuse me. You can also text us at 813-433-0885. We're looking forward to hearing from you. Back to you, Dr. Fred. Thank you, Bill. And I think, um, Bill, you mentioned to me that we don't have a uh, someone to answer the calls today, so it could get a little dicey. So if you want to email or text, that could be easier on the system today. But please engage. Well, I'll also Let give a little update. It looks like we might have somebody. DT, my boss, walked on in a minute ago, and he might be able to handle the phones for a while. And Clark, she's got a little difficulties with her car, so I'm hoping she'll be able to enjoy the fourth later on. But yeah, right. call on in, folks. Wonderful. So um, in the 20th century, the government at the urging of several major industrialists, Andrew Carnegie and John Rockefeller, started doing some research into healthcare. And there was a man named Abraham Flexner. Flexner was a creepy little guy who somehow had his fingers in 
education. And um, this man created what's called the Flexner Report in 1910. He did this by going to all the um, medical schools in the nation and looking at them. And his report was very damning to um, anything that wasn't what we call today allopathic medicine. <clears throat> so allopathic medicine is the type of medicine that 99% of MDs and DOs practice today. And it is a allopathy is uh, uh, basically looking at something to be against. Allo is foreign. So Western medicine looks for something to blame that is the cause of what you've got and then tries to fight the thing it blames. And so this one form of looking at medical problems, illness care, was favored by Flexner for some reason. His report was very, very troublesome because what it did was uh, give a shading, a biased shading to the um, this categorically illness-based system and, and damned all of the other ones. Um, it, it actually put multiple schools of, of, of healthcare out of business. They were forced to close by the government. Uh, naturopathic schools that taught how the body actually has the resources to heal itself, which is completely true and completely intuitive because how else does a body run for a hundred years with nothing more than food, water, sleep, and exercise, um, and relationships, of course. Um, the, uh, osteopathic schools were forced to become MD schools, even though the osteopaths were the origin of the concepts of spinal energy and manipulation, which is very important healthcare modality. Homeopathic schools were forced to close. The last one in existence was Hahnemann in Philadelphia, and it taught homeopathy until the 1950s. My uncle was the last class. He graduated in 58, I believe, 56 possibly. And they were the last class that had to take the homeopathic board. After that, they taught the, taught the history of homeopathy because they didn't believe in it any longer, even though scientifically it's proven to be effective. Another thing that Flexner did, um, well, in doing that, he, he decreased access. The, the government decreased access to healthcare for many people because many people relied on these other systems because they couldn't afford the expensive poisons that Carnegie and Rockefeller were having their corporations create. And then another thing that happened was he, um, this report was used to decrease, um, black people access to healthcare. All but two black medical schools were closed. Um, there were um, something like 3% of all doctors were black at that point, and it went down to 2.5%, and still it's at 5% today when blacks are about 9 to 10% of the American population. So it's still being quite underserved. Um, and then Rockefeller was really involved, and he helped create this um, medical business. And, and saw that you could profit by selling these poisons that his petrochemical factories created. And so we ended up with um, um, much reduced access and much reduced thinking 
because if you're only allowed to think about healthcare in one school of thought, you eliminate a lot of other possibilities for getting people well. And you restrict their access because many people don't want to have surgery and many people don't want to have, um, you know, in, invasive beams of radiation and, and they don't want to take potions and poisons that they don't understand and don't necessarily know would work. And now that we know the truth about the pharma industry, that they hide the bad information and give us only the good, um, much of the time, we can see that there's a, a big problem with with many things going on in in our access to healthcare and so access can be affected other ways and so uh you know when you when you separate out groups uh, it's much easier to take uh action against them and so today uh we're dealing with another access issue um the supreme court um six five or six justices lied to get their seats and then they overturned roe Roe v. Wade. Um, the um, injustices uh, should be removed, but besides that, this this law should have been a law because honestly, a case law is law, but it's not really legislation. And <clears throat> access could have been permanently in place um, as of 2010 when the Democrats controlled the entire government. Instead, of producing a health bill of rights. They produced a fascist bill of death from my perspective because the bill's dead on arrival and it doesn't do that much for anybody except for inculcate our access in a system that doesn't work for everybody. Ro, uh, uh, the, the, the nature of what they did with the Affordable Care Act it just disgusts me. The Affordable Care Act is, it may ensure 19 million people, but ensure for what? So they can actually get into the medical industrial complex, the one that the Flexner report made sure was the only access of healthcare we could get. So we're actually using American tax dollars to give corporations profit to run an insurance scam for illness care medicine. When actually we already had a system in place that would have covered everybody. It's called Medicare. And they had the ability to expand Medicare for everybody at that time. And they also had the ability to make a health bill of rights that would have prevented the overturn of Roe v. Wade because they would have inculcated in legislative law the uh, right to an abortion. But they balked on that because um, they, for some reason, couldn't do it. Is it because they were bought off by the insurance company executives with too much money so that they wouldn't disrupt that program? Well, maybe. I don't know. I'm just asking questions. I want to know why they didn't give us health freedom instead of restricting us further to illness care through insurance companies that make a profit on my tax dollars. So access is really critical here. And to ensure access, we need to have a health bill of rights. At this point, the government is in such disarray that I don't believe we're going to see them be able to get through Congress these very much needed bills that would protect our ability to access things that aren't necessarily the ones that are being promulgated and pushed on us by 
a government that that has a bias towards one type of way of looking at human life and one that isn't working for everybody obviously so when we look at this um, um, issue of, of freedom we need to look at how it affects medical therapy directly and medical ethics but in the meantime I'd still like to talk to some of you people. Yeah, I'm ready for that. So let me give it again. It's all all waiting on you all out there, folks. I know you're getting ready for your 4th of July, warming up your grills and all of that. But while you're listening to us, give us a call. You can participate. Dial 813-239-9663 or send your emails to dj at wmnf.org. And continue texting us at 813-433-0885. We're here for you today, and it's all about freedom. Join us. What have you got there, doctor? So, in medical therapy, there are some rules. And we need to have ethics when applying medical therapies to anyone. And the pillars of medical ethics... Um, they can be expanded beyond this, but this is the core. Four basic principles. Autonomy. Beneficence. Non-maleficence. And justice. So when we talk about autonomy, that really comes straight forward when we talk about Roe. My body, my choice. We have to remember that it is the woman's body and she has autonomy over it. And we also have to remember that the Constitution provides rights for anyone born in America. Born is the operative word. Legally, no one is born until they leave the vagina. They aren't born at conception. So in reality, this is controversial, but if you think about it completely logically, the fetus has no rights. The fetus hasn't been born. It is not an American citizen. The woman who carries the fetus has all the rights in this situation because she is a born citizen. This is difficult. But when we look at autonomy, autonomy requires something. It, requ it requires informed consent. Those two words together have a lot of meaning. Informed. There must be knowledge. It can't be secret. All of the issues around a specific intervention must be made clear to the individual who might receive this intervention. It's critical. The, in 1931, a group got together in Berlin and made some guidelines, and they said that innovative therapy may be carried out only after the subject or his legal representative has been unambiguously consented to the procedure in the light of relevant information provided in advance. Where consent is refused, innovative therapy may only initiate it if it constitutes an urgent procedure to preserve life or prevent serious damage to health, and prior consent could not be attained under the circumstances. In other words, if somebody's unconscious and you might be able to save their lives, you can go ahead and do a, a, an innovative therapy, but you probably shouldn't without consent. In fact, it's best not to. And hopefully a legal representative will be there to help you get consent to do that. And that's why we have so many rules set up around that so that we don't do involuntary procedures. 
And then the Nuremberg Code came out of World War II's medical experimentation on human subjects. The voluntary consent of the human subject is absolutely essential. This means that the person involved should have legal capacity to give consent, should be situated as to be able to exercise free power of choice without the intervention of any, any element. Remember this one, without the intervention of any element of force, fraud, deceit, duress, overreaching, or other ulterior form of constraint or coercion, and should have sufficient knowledge and comprehension of the elements of the subject matter involved as to enable him to make an understanding and enlightened decision. This latter element requires that before the acceptance of an affirmative decision by the experimental subject, there should be made known to him all inconveniences or hazards reasonably to be expected and the effects upon his health or person, which may come from his participation. You have to know all the risks and you can't be coerced. Have you heard of being deprived of your job because you won't get a shot in your arm? Does this vol violate this primary rule that came out of medical human experimentation from World War II? We are very close to violating that, especially when we consider autonomy in light of the other parts of the four pillars of medical ethics. One of those is beneficence. And beneficence <clears throat> means that you will help the person. So how much benefit is there in any intervention? I think I've talked before about the um, um, uh, deception that goes on when it comes to stenting. The benefits of stenting, coronary vascular stenting, are not as great as might be told, and the, the risks are quite high. Getting a stent means you're at risk for a heart attack for a year, caused by increased risk caused by the stent. That's not necessarily laid out when they're going to give you that stent. And so I'm, I, we have to, and that's actually been evident in clinical research. They've proven that the, the, the information is not always prevented clearly, presented clearly. And so um, <clears throat> in light of that, we have to also understand there should be no risk. There should be no big problems. There should be no maleficence, no badness coming from it. But there's always going to be risk in things we do. And so we have to weigh that in light of the um, known risks and known benefits. And so myocarditis for the shots and many other things are possibilities. And then we have justice, the last one. Vaccines will prevent hospitalizations and may reduce uh, healthcare worker shortages to protect system capacity. But vaccines injure some and there's no product liability. So is there justice there? I'm really not sure. We have to really look at these things in detail. I think we have a caller. Yes, indeed. Rita's been waiting patiently here for us. Let's hear what she has to share with us. Good morning, Rita. Good morning. Hi, Rita. Hi. Um, I have a friend who is uh, 73, and he had uh, one kidney removed for cancer, and now his second remaining kidney is uh, in, in stage 3 kidney disease. And his primary care doctor doesn't seem all that concerned about it. I think he needs to be followed by a nephrologist and possibly be put on a kidney transplant list. Um, they don't seem to make any recommendations. They just say he's doing great. And I'm wanting more to be done to extend his uh, life. And I wonder... Well, I 
I think you're right on it there. That's um, uh, very true. I mean, when you have two kidneys and your um, uh, kidney function drops, your filtration ability drops to the point where you're considered to be in chronic kidney disease. And it's it goes in stages. And <clears throat> truly, stage 3A chronic kidney disease is not bad. There's almost no consequences from that. However, it can get worse um, easier than if somebody doesn't have kidney disease. And so from uh, even in my practice, when I see someone with two kidneys with stage 3A kidney disease, I have them visit a nephrologist once that diagnosis is made because they actually have a specialty related illness. I tell them that with their two kidneys, when they see the doctor, the doctor is going to say, you don't need to see me for another year or two because they don't really have much worry about it. So, um, somebody with one kidney though, who's gone into right. stage three kidney disease really needs a nephrologist to be following them because a, a, um, uh, an injury, um, um, a, an illness could actually make that kidney get suddenly worse. And so I think it's really important when you're in this situation to have all that um, uh, uh, followed up and, and the kidney doctor probably will want to see that person more than every two or three years. And yes, you're right on it. So get them to a nephrologist. Okay, no other recommendations besides that. I think the best thing to do is just to go to get to the neurologist, but nephrologist, but also be aware of over-the-counter medications, um, mixing with pharmaceuticals that are also also prescribed. Um, because with one kidney, you have to be really paying attention to what you're putting through it. And you need to make sure you're getting lots of water to stay hydrated to make the um, filtration work well. And right. So, um, and, and also at this point with one kidney and stage three, a kidney disease, you want to be paying attention to the amount of protein being taken in. Right. Yeah. I see everything online that says, uh, for the diet, but it all tells about what not to eat, which it makes it look like there's nothing left to eat, but <laughs> rice and, you know, no, protein. no, he can eat a whole protein, low potassium. Well, but you don't have to go that low. That's the whole thing. I think that if, if um, a Mediterranean diet is used and you get you know 80% plant, 20% animal, or even 85% plant, 15% animal, that's going to protect the kidneys. Okay. I'm writing this down. Okay, great. So yes, get the nephrologist on board because I think you need that follow-up. Okay, great. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. Yeah, giving out the number last time got us, Rita. So let me give it on out one more time and let folks participate in this great show. Um, give us a call at 813-239-9663 or continue sending your emails to dj at wmnf.org. And you can also text us at 813-433-0885. All right, Dr. Fred, to you. So Linda writes in. Happy fourth, y'all. Love all the information. How can I find out why my body is making gallstones? My cholesterol has always been around 90. No drugs. Eat only real food. Are the stones made from cholesterol? Can they be calcium? Question of osteoporosis. I'm just trying to figure out why it's happening and how to fix it. So we don't really know why gallstones actually build up. Um, a, sus a suspicion is inflammation. 
And um, <clears throat> I think that pasteurized dairy is one of the things that irritates many gallbladders. I've seen many people who uh, love their cheese end up getting their gallbladder out. But um, a cholesterol around 90 sounds like there is a problem. Most people don't have cholesterols that are under, say, 130 normally. So there's something interesting about your metabolism there that needs to be followed up, probably by an endocrinologist. Um, but uh, eating real food is definitely the way to avoid uh, getting gallstones. You want to limit the amount of processed foods, limit the amount of sugar, limit the intake of um, artificial ingredients and additives and that will be a big help, but I think looking at pasteurized dairy and maybe just eliminating dairy entirely could be a really good choice to help the gallbladder feel a little bit happier. And um, uh, gallstones are uh, bile salts and cholesterol and um, calcification. The calcium gets into them because of uh, just the nature of bile salts. They, they actually attract minerals like sodium and calcium. Carol writes, thank you for all you do to make us informed in the community, hopefully leading to a more just society. Yes, and that is actually a really important thing. Um, justice here is what's not being served. Um, we're seeing um, um, lack of access um, on many levels. Um, you know, we've just added a massive lack of access to women's health care. This is frankly disgusting. I am not proud of America on this July 4th. I'm really not proud of it at all. I'm watching our country regress in so many ways. On the other hand, I'm looking at the people that are in my networks that are working to build something better. It's out there. We just have to get together in groups and continue to work away from this um, materialistic and um, um, really uh, grasping, I see, grasping, greedy way of living that America has really become, demanding um, 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 things that are not real. And I'm talking about the government and elite people demanding of the rest of society, you know, working two jobs, having to being forced to buy a government sponsored corporate illness care program when the government could just give that to us through Medicare for all. Um, that would provide basic access to illness care for many people, which is what we're asking for, you know, access when you get sick so you can actually get some help. Healthcare is a completely different thing. Healthcare is what I do. I do some illness care. That's what I was trained in. But my goal is to not do illness care, it's to do wellness care, to empower people to get well and stay well so they don't need to use the Western medical illness care system. My hope is that as we develop better ethics for healthcare, as we follow those ethics, as we empower people with education to understand what health is and how they can attain it without having to use potions, pills, radiation, surgery, and all these other noxious illness care interventions, as we empower them, we can see a healthcare system build 
And I'm seeing it happening now. I, I'm seeing it all around. And we can see this healthcare system build and then hopefully consider illness care as alternative medicine in the future. We stay well enough that only when we break to the point where we can't fix it naturally, we end up having to get a surgery like a gallbladder removal. That for me is last ditch medicine, but we're using it first line. That's why it costs so much. We're doing all the noxious stuff first instead of getting in early and fixing the problems. Um, Larry, uh, Patty and Larry say, thanks for taking the time on this holiday to talk with us. We always look forward to your show. Yes, um, I wouldn't miss this one. This is great. We got to talk health freedom. I don't know if I'll miss another July 4th if I'm on <laughs> because this is so important. <laughs> um, we need to have these discussions and we, we're not having enough nuanced discussions. Um, you know, I've been um, attacked for talking about the vaccines uh, in, in a negative way. It's because nobody else will. I'm not an anti-vaxxer. There are benefits for every Western medicine thing that I have prescribed to people. I believe in the illness care system to the point where we know and recognize and talk about it as illness care and not as health care. I believe that we can use these tools because they're really valuable. But there's so many tools we can use before we get to having to use the noxious pills, potions, beams and, and knives. Well, there's so much we can do. Um, and I'm evidence of it myself. I had a herniated disc in 1994. I could not lift my right leg. It was paralyzed. But I fixed it without surgery. I did use medication, steroids and, and, and narcotics and muscle relaxers, but I used chiropractic. I used massage therapy. I used energy work. I used herbs, acupuncture, every modality I could find. And I fixed it. I have no problem with that leg and never have I had surgery on my back and I don't plan to because we can do these things. We need access, we need information, and we can't have a system that's supported by the government that prevents access to information about other things that denigrates these other things that are valuable and work, that makes up stuff about them and hides the nuance. You know, there was a major review of homeopathy that was done that showed that it had a a statistical significance of 91% likely to be non-random, 91% likely to really work. But Western medicine only accepts 95%. So if you don't have 95% confidence, then you can say, oh, that doesn't work. When obviously it does, it's just, it's only got 91% confidence that it works completely non-randomly. And that's what we got with the Ivermectin studies, 91% confidence that there's a 70% reduction in mortality, but they won't accept it because they only take 95%. This is the nuance that we need to bring into medical discussions that's being blocked out by the system because they have an agenda of selling a medication, of selling a procedure. And it's not actually allowing access for other practitioners to people who might want to listen to them because they're denigrated by the system constantly. And the system has money. Tell me the cardiologists, orthopedic surgeons, and big pharma don't have enough money to yell louder than a lowly pediatrician that doesn't want to give a 14 vaccine stack to a 18 month old one day. This one's from anonymous. Before COVID, were doctors required to take a flu shot in order to work in the medical field? And other than those 
who take a philosophical or religious exemption. Are you aware children are required to take shot after shot in order to attend school? Of course, this is our mandate system of we have one way of looking at healthcare. We have one answer and you must listen to us because we are the authority. Big brother is telling us what we need to do. And yes, I was told that I had to take a flu shot every year to enter one of the hospitals that I worked at. And since I had my own office, I would give the shot in my office sometimes. Other times I would not because I didn't feel they were necessary. And actually for the last 15 years of my career, I didn't take one because Tamiflu is available and I have antiviral herbals, antiviral IVs in form of vitamins and all these things actually work. And so I didn't feel a need to take a flu shot because I haven't had the flu in the last 40 years. So um, it just, for me, it doesn't make a lot of sense to force people who aren't in risk groups to take it. Even though they talk about herd immunity, it's obvious that herd immunity is not working for coronavirus. And um, um, children, I think that uh, every parent should be aware that stacking vaccines is not good. And every parent should refuse to take the stack. If the pediatrician wants to give the vaccines and the, pa the patient is and the parent is willing to do so, which is fine, make sure that they're given spread out, not 20 at once. That kills the immune system. And no matter what they tell you about there aren't effects from vaccines. No, there's not a direct causality. But when you inundate a young immune system with lots of stuff, you get complications. There is actually a very good published uh, article that was retracted because they didn't like the methodology. The methodology was this doctor looked at all of the vaccines given in his practice and all the patients and looked at visits in his office. And now he had a huge practice. Um, 30 some thousand uh, were looked at and they um, found that um, all of the chronic illnesses were higher in people who were vaccinated versus those who were not. And he only had about 4% of the population that didn't get vaccines, but the other 96% did. And it was quite skewed as to how much asthma, eczema, and other problems are actually um, um, present. Robin writes, and I love Robin. Thank you, Robin. You've done it again. Um, you've wrote, written another poem. <clears throat> um, this morning as she drove out to the beach, the huge American flag that she goes by was hanging limp. No wind, obviously, but it looked like uh, it had given up flying proud, which provoked these words. I want to be proud of America, but it seems even the flag has given up. I want to be proud of my fellow Americans, but it seems even the flag has given up. Where is the respect for our neighbor? Whether it be next door or the next country, regardless of color, religion, or creed, what has happened to honor, truth, patriotism? Even the flag has given up. Why do our so-called leaders shout at each other? What does that teach our children? What does that say about us? Even the flag has given up. And now women's rights are being threatened. I want to be proud. I yearn to be proud. I love America, yet I find myself embarrassed most of the time these days. The flag has given up. Thank you, Robin. Yeah, very poignant. I think we have a phone call. Yes, as a matter of fact, we've got Chris from Clearwater on the line. Good morning, Chris. Hi, Chris. 
Oh, good morning, Doctor. I, I'm not uh, complaining at all about anybody who might uh, criticize. Well, I'm not complaining that you, because you are critical of the medical literature and and um, you've changed your mind, uh, I've noticed, over time when it comes to the COVID shot. And, you know, you, you mentioned herd immunity. Uh, well, uh, what, there's a distinction between the immunity that's granted by the COVID shots and natural immunity. And uh, I'll just mention there is. Yeah, one article on Brownstone, uh, Brownstone Institute, brownstone.org. Yeah, that's a great article. I like that. And it's really on target. Um, um, what, that's plus research studies affirm naturally acquired immunity to COVID-19 documented, linked, and quoted. Yeah. The one I was talking about. But yeah, Brownstone has a lot of great articles all the time. It's excellent. You know, I was um, um, looking at that and, I, and it made me think about what actually the best one is that the CDC published last year. They showed um, from, uh, I think it was like from April to December, they showed who got serious illness, who went to the hospital and divided it out by which type of immunity. So obviously people who were unvaccinated had the most uh, severe and the most uh, visits to the hospital. The second um, was the people who had vaccines and the two lines at the bottom that were flat and had virtually no incidence of serious illness and no incidence of hospitalizations were people that had natural immunity and natural immunity plus a vaccine. So natural immunity trumps the vaccine for Omicron per CDC's own data. Yeah, and you know, I, like I said, I compliment you for having changed your mind being, uh, you know, as the information comes out and evolves, and I know a lot of people don't have the attention span or curiosity to look at the studies, but, uh, you know, they just want to throw a label on people. And, and um, oh, I want also want to mention the uh, studies of uh, children who you're, you might have uh, been referring to, children who are non-vaxxed, uh, partially vaxxed, uh, according to the CDC recommended schedule, and fully vaxxed. Yes. Uh, there are studies done by uh, Dr. Paul Thomas, Dr. James Lyons-Weiler, and Dr. Brian Hooker. There are about five or six studies, uh, maybe six now, that they've done in collaboration. And Dr. Paul Thomas, in his practice, he's has the unique perspective of um, having patients who... who uh, some of them have declined the shots or gone on a spread out schedule or not uh, gotten any vaccines at all. So he has a, you know, he has that data that uh, he, he unique, he uniquely qualified to comment on. Yes. And, you know, when, when somebody says, uh, wants to call you an anti-vaxxer, what exactly is that? I, I have seven different. Well, I'll tell you, Chris, it's a, Chris, it's an epithet that helps people um, shut up fast. And that's the whole thing. And your points are great, Chris, but I think I have another caller. Thank you very much. Well, I, I want to ask, you know, is it, is it an ex-vaxxer due to injury or seeing an injury? Is it a pro-vaxxer, though, your anti-COVID shot, like Dr. Peter McCullough Right. I mean, there's so many different iterations and using a label like anti-vaxxer just tells people to shut up. So actually, um, I think it's a terrible time to actually label people. We, we have to talk. We have to get into the nuance. And what you're talking about, there is seven different nuances on what a vaccine, uh, an anti-vaxxer could be. So thanks, Chris. All right. And I've got Rudy on the line here. Good morning, Rudy. Hello, Rudy. Did Rudy leave? Rudy, I guess Rudy did. Well, here we have another one. Um, vaccines. Do you agree that all this new interest in knowing what is in vaccine has been thoroughly anti-government? No, 
I'm a scientist. I will want to know what's in anything that goes in my arm. I think that if you don't have an interest, um, you really should learn to get an interest because you can't trust everybody to do everything right. And in this day and age, when it comes to medical interventions, you need to be aware of everything about it. You don't want to just let somebody do something to you. And so, yes, um, this is not anti-government in the least. This is anti-idiocy. <laughs> this is anti-stupidity. Don't let people do things to you when you don't have complete and full information. Full disclosure is required. Alexandra um, uh, wonders if um, she needs to have a colonoscopy. Um, she had a Cologuard test. Um, she's 50. She has no prior history in the family. Um, and they say cancer is caught early with colonoscopy. Um, so I don't know whether her Cologuard test was um, positive or negative. But um, so Cologuard is a stool test that looks at the genetics of cancer. It is as accurate and sensitive, possibly more sensitive than a colonoscopy um, because it gets 95 to 97% of cancers recognized. And so, um, and it has very low false uh, positives and almost, uh, uh, you know, 3% false negatives, I believe. So it's as good as doing a colonoscopy. So if you have a negative one and there's no prior family history, and you've never had a colon polyp, cologuards, are a replacement from my perspective for the colonoscopy, but no gastroenterologist will tell you that. I guarantee you. Well, it looks like we got Rudy back and we're down to the last five minutes of the show. So let's see what Rudy has to say. Good morning, Rudy. Hey there. Good morning. Good morning, Good morning Dr. Harvey. What's on your mind, Rudy? Um, a friend of mine has been diagnosed with pulmonary fibrosis. Is that treatable? Well, pulmonary fibrosis is a very difficult disease to treat. Um, and so you have to look for why. If it's the idiopathic kind, meaning they don't know what caused it, that is the most difficult to treat. And so there are some medications out there. Um, I have seen um, some people do well using functional medicine and getting all of the oxidative stress out of the body because it is oxidation that causes the fibrosis to occur. So you calm down the body, you get rid of all the toxins. Uh, chelation therapy has been helpful for some people. Um, ozone therapy has been helpful for some. Um, and intravenous peroxide therapy, which is something that's poo-pooed by most of Western science. But I had one patient with pulmonary fibrosis who uh, once a week got a, a, a peroxide infusion. He felt fabulous for three to five days because he got extra oxygen in his blood that he couldn't otherwise. Nothing is going to completely reverse it except for or get rid of it except for a lung transplant. And so you have to do everything possible to support so the person can actually function. Okay. How can they get in touch with you? Um, well, you can actually uh, go online and look at the Institute for Functional Medicine.org, IFM.org, can help you find a functional medicine doctor. Um, and um, otherwise, I, I don't take referrals from the show. Okay, thank you, doctor. You're so welcome. Bye. Bye-bye. Karen writes, I took alpha-lipoic acid on my recommendation, that is for uh, post-herpetic neuropathy. It took over a month and she got relief. Um, however, she has a metallic taste in her mouth. 
Um, and that one I have never heard of before. Um, alpha lipoic acid, um, um, may do that. I mean, anything you take could change things. Um, I'm wondering if the, during the time that you were taking it, did you have possibility of COVID? Um, cause that will change your taste as well. Mark is in Northport and wonders if, um, a doctor would send someone home with an ileostomy and, um, um, after Crohn's and multiple surgery. Um, well, yes, an ileostomy is not unusual when you have severe inflammation of the bowel, which is what Crohn's disease is. Um, so I, I'm not sure, um, otherwise about that. Um, patient says she had a bone spur and was disabled and had a choice from her insurance company uh, to reduce the pain. <clears throat> she can go once a month and get a painful shot in her foot. She can get orthotics for the shoes um, <clears throat> and she can have surgery. They will pay for the shot. They will pay for the surgery, but they won't pay for the shoes. The shoes cost $240 and they'll spend um, $480 a year to get her shots, which don't actually do anything. And the orthotics actually may. <laughs> um it, this is the way the, the, the system works. You don't have access. They give you choices. You can't afford certain things. So they force you into therapeutic decisions. So essentially the insurance companies are practicing medicine without a license. It's really a sick situation. You're trapped. And, uh, I feel really poorly about how badly this has, uh, uh, gone as we've developed the business of medicine over the last 20, 30 years. Um, people really don't have the choices unless they have cash and can pay cash for things that they want to buy outside systems. Um, and that is a definite two-tiered um, system for taking care of people. But we're done. We're out of time again. Um, so sorry. I'd love to keep talking with you folks, but I think Bill has some things to say. And next week, we're going to talk about summer stuff. Um, I think we should look at ultraviolet radiation and heat and all that kind of stuff to stay healthy during our summer. All right. Well, thank you there, Dr. Fred. Appreciate your another great show and a special 4th of July edition. And I'd like to thank everybody who listened and call on in. Y'all are the greatest. Take care. Stay healthy. You've been listening to the Healthy Steps Radio Show with Dr. Fred Harvey here on WMNF Tampa. Seconds away is five minutes of NPR news, and then I'll present Sustainable Living, hosted by the Acme Show host, Annie Yellis. Her guests today are live and in living color here in Studio One. Katie Wallace and Lena Young-Green are here in the studio to talk to us about community gardens. And a special thanks goes on out to Clark for handling the phones today. So until next Monday at 10 a.m., thank you for your support and listening to the Healthy Steps Radio Show with Dr. Fred Harvey here on WMNF Tampa, your community-conscious radio station. Stay safe, stay thoughtful, and know that you are loved. Music.